I uh, have been for quite some time. We are uh, we're in, in our series uh, called Don't Judge Me um, in the book of Judges. And we're at the end. This is it. We've gone the entire sermon, uh, the entire sum, summer through the book of Judges. And uh, just real quick show of hands. How many of you have done a great job not judging anyone? 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 Anyone not judge someone this summer? I mean, we're talking about don't judge me. And, uh, and we're going through the book of Judges. And, and okay, so let me, let me give a preface. Uh, I shared this with uh, some people this morning. Of all the sermons I've given, this one makes me the most apprehensive. And so let me start by saying there is a PG-13 warning to this one. More so than any of the other sermons. In fact... Um, of I could I think I think this is fair to say, of all of the passages in the Bible, this one might be the worst. This one might be uh, the hardest to stomach. Now I say that just to warn you. If you have littles in here, you know, I'll, I'll, when I do this, that means earmuff time, and um, and so the rest of you are now intrigued. You're like, I'm glad I came today. <laughs> So, so we're going we're gonna to jump in and, and a couple things. First, um, this is scripture. This is God's word. So we study it and read it even though we don't want to. And it, it may, it, like when we get into this, it just feels like, oh, okay, can we be done? There's a reason it's here. Now, number two. So number one, this is God's word. We study it. We don't shy away from it, even though it may feel uncomfortable or we don't want to look at it. All right, number two, just because it happens and it's recorded, listen to this, this is important, doesn't mean God condones it, okay? Listen, a lot of times people will think, well, it's in the Bible, so therefore God must approve of whatever it says. And people will write off the Bible because it records bad people who do bad things. And they'll say, well, see, it's in the Bible, so it has God's stamp of approval. All right, don't do that with this passage. Don't think that just because it's written down for us to read about, that God says, good job, people. I promise you, even as we go through this, God is not saying, good job, people, in this passage. All right, are we ready? Here we go. I want to start by asking, uh, and this is... a kind of sets the stage, a, a really uncomfortable question that really there's no real answer to and we can all give different answers and it would all be terrible. What is the worst thing humanity is capable of? The worst thing. Maybe we haven't even seen it yet. I mean, right away our mind goes probably to World War II. Uh, there's probably things that like, the, the kinds of things we don't wanna think about, we don't wanna read about, we don't wanna watch shows about. Um, you know, if you... Um, a number of us are going to Israel this next year. There's about 100 of us actually going to Israel next, uh, next, uh, next April. And one of the things we do is we visit the Holocaust Museum. And, and it's like, it's terrible. It's, it's terrible. It's, 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 it's hard to be, it's good to be there. And it's terrible for the soul to realize we did this. Like people did this. And it wasn't that long ago. We're not talking about thousands of years ago. Just, like just not too long ago. People did this. What is the worst that humanity is capable of? Um, we're going to see here um, in, in these three chapters, probably some of the worst that we can think of, the, like with regard to 
what human beings are capable of, here it is in the book of Judges, and it's how the book ends. It's like a you know, super great, wonderful, and they lived happily ever after. That's not the book of Judges. They don't live happily ever after. This is, this is perhaps the climax of Israel's moral depravity and, and with, a, with a, a whole kind of host of unspeakable sins. And here's the key, ready? This is what we see. And this is how it relates to us. We see that, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's the commentary. Everyone in this passage does what is right in their own eyes. And I promise you, I promise you, that is true of culture today. Is it not? We literally call it, live your truth. Here's what we're saying. Do what you, do what you deem is right for you. It's what the Bible says, doing what is right in your own eyes. I decide or determine this is right for me and no one can tell me otherwise. That philosophy is not new. It, is, it, is, it shows up here in Judges and it is terrible. Here's what we're gonna see. A personal sin escalates into sinful behavior of a city, which then escalates into sinful behavior of a tribe. For us, the equivalent would be like a, a state which then escalates into the sinful behavior of the entire nation of Israel. This thing escalates quickly. It starts off rather unassuming, and then it gets really bad. I mean, some of it, again, this is PG-13. Some of it I won't even read. You can read on your own because, uh, you know, I don't want it record, my voice recorded saying these things for all time, forever on the internet for everyone to look up. Now, here's what we see. Ready? This is the point of the message today. We are utterly sinful and in need of a savior king. We're utterly, humanity is utterly sinful. And everyone, you and I included, of course, are in need of a savior king. This is the comment in, even in this passage. It talks about a king and the lack of a king and how this happens because of a lack of a king. We are utterly sinful and in need of a savior king. So let's start. Here's, there's three chapters. We'll kind of look at each one and each one builds and it just gets just terrible and terrible. Here's how it starts. A Levite who's unnamed, a Levite's depravity leads to more and worse sins. Here's the point for us, ready? What does this mean for us, right? What do we learn from judges? How, how does this speak to us and our heart? Humanity without God is capable of terrible things, terrible things. Not every single person, but humanity as a whole, we are capable of terrible things. So these final chapters begin with a Levite intentionally left unnamed, probably because he's meant, the, the author, the writer is meant, uses this as a, as he kind of serves as a proto example of Israel. Like this is just common. This is just kind of normal stuff that then escalates. But this, this would represent many, many of the people of Israel and how they kind of, their mentality and the cultural um, sort of uh, um, do's and don'ts, what was allowed during this time. Judges. Chapter 19, verse one, here's how it starts. In those days, Israel had no king. There it is. This shows up a number of times throughout the book of, of Judges. It's kind of a common theme. So, so clearly, this is the, the leading theory is that this is probably Samuel who's writing this, and he's living in the time of, uh, of, uh, of even of King David, and he's probably making an example, like a, 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 
an argument as to why they need a king and why they need a good king and why maybe David is the good king because he's commenting, hey, look what happens when there was no king. In the time of Israel, there was, he said this, in those days, Israel had no king. Here's the assumption. When he's writing this, they had a king, right? And he's saying back then there was no king. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote hill in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, all right? So for us, we would say like, okay, that's weird for them. That's probably common practice. But she, so this concubine becomes his wife. She becomes, uh, she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah, all right? Again, this, we read this and we say, okay, that probably happens quite often today. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return, and he had with him his servant and two donkeys. Probably because he's like, hey, I'm bringing a ride for you. I got my car. We got an empty seat. I want you to jump in. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. Um, I'm sorry. Here, uh, she took him into her parents' home. And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. So father-in-law, dad of the, of the wife, uh, welcomes him, probably likes him. It's like, oh man, why did you leave him? How could you do this? We, it was such a great son-in-law. And he, and he, so he welcomes him, he gladly welcomes him in. Verse four, his father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained there with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. He's probably like, oh man, it's been so long since you've been in our house, just stay. So he stays three days. Now, and then there's a, a long back and forth that we'll skip over because it's really like the father-in-law like arguing for why he should stay longer. So he stays a fourth day. And then he's like, all right, hey, you know what? It's already late. You're tired. Just stay a fifth day. It's like, okay, you, are you trying to ask me to move in? Is this like, are you trying to like make me become part of your family? So he stays for a total of five days and then he heads home. And they come to a town that in the scripture is called Jebus, where the Jebusites are from. Um, and it's also another name for Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is not the Jerusalem that you think of at this point, And it's not even like inhabited by Israelites. They're Canaanites. And so they're, kind, they're enemies. So they come to Jebus, Jerusalem, but he refuses to stay there because he wants to stay with his own kind. They're Canaanites. He's an Israelite. He's like, no, no, I'm not going. We're going to keep going up the road a little bit because we want to stay with our people. Our people will take care of us. All right, dot, dot, dot. Here we go. So verse 14, so they went on and the sun set as they neared Gebeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. No hospitality, though they're kind of waiting for someone. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim who was living in Gebeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, but he's not, he's an Ephraimite from another tribe, Came, uh, came in from his work in the field. So this old Ephraimite, who is not one of the natives there, um, he welcomes them in, he feeds their donkeys, he gives them stuff to eat and drink and, and a place to rest, a place to stay. And, uh, and so far you're like, okay, so wh- wh- this isn't, there's nothing to comment on this. This is, this is kind of unremarkable so far. All right, here we go. Now the terrible begins and just gets worse and worse. While they were, verse 22, While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house. So, and I didn't even want to put this on the screen. So that, um, um, so that we can be with him. So we can spend time with him, our new friend. All right. This right away. You're like, okay, that's not normal behavior. That's not how you treat someone. And he 
looks at this and, and recognizes, he probably already knows this is kind of the, uh, the culture of the city and because and, and, he tells them, hey, don't stay in the square, stay with me tonight because he probably knows. So these guys, they show up, they pound on the door and they say, hey, we know you got a visitor. We want him to be with us for the night. Okay, the owner of the house went outside. He's a, a brave guy, at least to a point. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. And then he does, again, we would look at and say, this is, how can you even do this? Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine, this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. All right, okay, plot thickens and we see where this is headed. Uh, The reason that he probably does this is because uh, women were uh, seen as property. They were assets to be exchanged and used for however the man deemed necessary or for whatever reason he wanted, right? So uh, he would look at, use even his own daughter to say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna use her to stop this, this terrible thing from happening to this guy and, and, uh, and also will offer up his concubine as well. All right, a peace offering. Can we, okay, can we do that? Okay, right away you're like, ooh. Okay, this, this, it's not even bad yet. Don't, he says, don't do this outrageous thing. He says, but the men would not listen to him. So the man, the man, the Levite, took his concubine and he says, and he gave her to them. He like literally forced her out of the door, out of the house and said, all right, here you go, almost like as a peace offering, and leave me alone. And it goes on to say that, uh, that they abused her and then let her go at dawn. So we read this, and it's really easy to read over and, and to just move on and be like, oh, let's just, let's just not talk about this, except here it is. And, and this really happened. This really happened to this poor, this poor soul. They let her go at dawn and she makes it back to the doorstep, uh, the doorstep of the house where she's laying there. And we'll see here in a second where she dies. It says this, verse 27. When her master got up in the morning, so the guy, the Levite, he went to bed. No big deal, went to bed. Probably didn't even think about it. Gets up in the morning and is ready to move on. Now here's the thing. Here's what, in his mind, he's like, she's gone, I'm moving on without her. He left her behind. He's ready to leave. He got up in the morning and opened the door of, how, of the house and stepped out to continue on his way. He was gonna leave her. There lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, again, this is a terrible. He said to her, hey, get up, let's go. What? Hey, come on, get up. All right, you're back. All right, fine. I'm about to leave. So if you wanna come, you need to get up. But there was no answer. But there was no answer. Then, realizing what had happened, the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. He's like, all right, well, at least I'll take her home. This is a terrible story. Nothing's happened yet. I mean, it's bad. It gets worse, as if that were even possible. Things get even worse. Here we go. When he reached home, this, okay, earmuff time. Here we go, ready? When he reached home, He took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel, all the tribes. 
Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the days of the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Like we, we, what, what, how is this possible? Just imagine what we must do something, so speak up. This, this Levite then decides, all right, I'm going to get revenge because of what they did to my property. What? Because of how they acted, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to intentionally, I'm going to intentionally rile up everyone else to get revenge on these people. Now, let's talk about this because, you know, um, when we talk about, like, humanity without God is capable of terrible things, we sitting here read this and we say, I, you can never in a million years get me to do this. Like, I, this, is not, this isn't me. There's no way that this could possibly relate to me. And, and that's probably true. I hope that's true. I can't imagine any of us ever even thinking this would be okay to do. But this kind of thing does happen in the world today. This kind of thing. We're, we're, like this, this clearly doesn't represent us, but history, history does teach us that humanity is capable of terrible things. Terrible things, like things like the Holocaust or genocide or torture or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, abuse of innocent. And, and like, all right, here's what this passage is, is, is telling us. That, that people, when, when, they, when morality becomes subjective and, and we do, each does what is right in their own eyes without issue or without, uh, without remorse, we can, we can move very quickly into the deepest level of depravity. And this guy clearly goes there. We are utterly sinful as a people and in need of a savior king. That's how the story starts. Now, it escalates as if, if okay, okay, that's this bad enough. Let's just move on. All right, Let's, you're reading through, you know, you're reading through the Bible in a year, you get to this chapter and you're like, well, that's terrible, I want to read the next chapter. Okay, well, it doesn't get much easier. Here we go. Chapter 20, here's what we see. Misdirection and pride lead to now a civil war in Israel. This experience escalates from a, a, a guy to a city and now to a tribe or a, a, in our equivalent today, a state. This becomes now tribe fighting against tribe. And here's the point for us. Misdirection, misleading people and pride, ready for this? You know this, can destroy our relationships. We don't, we don't do this. Like you and I don't act on this level. But we certainly do mislead or, or, or not share the entire truth to maybe make ourselves look better. You've done that before. I know you have. You've, you've certainly made decisions out of pride before. I know you have. And, and the consequences aren't near on the level that this is, but, but that, like, that bug of sin that you have in you, boy, that's there. To mislead and misrepresent, to, 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 to live through and out of pride, boy, that's there. That's in you. And I know it's in you because it's in me. <laughs> Here's what we see. Judges chapter 20. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, because they all got the, you know, this... The, this thing delivered to them. 
and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. So they all get together and they're like, hey, we got to do something about this. This is, we've never seen anything like this. All right. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people. And, and here's what they do. They come ready for war. 400,000 men armed with swords. So they show up and they're like, all right, who did this? Who could possibly do this to one of our own? They got to pay. This thing escalates quickly. The Benjamites, the bad guys of the story, heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. So they realize, oh, they're calling together their armies. And and we'll see here shortly, they are going to gather their army. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. All right, Mr. Levite guy, unnamed Levite man, tell us what happened. And he shares the story, but he doesn't share all of it. He says that he went to stay in Gibeah and the men surrounded the house and, they tra- and he says, then they tried to kill me. Well, that's not true. They didn't try to kill you, but you know, he, they tried to kill me. They, could you believe this? They tried to kill me. And then he says this, and so they abused my concubine and she died. He doesn't say, he doesn't remind them, I actually gave her to them. He just says, they did this. They took her and this happened and, and she died. And then he says, so I cut her into pieces and sent them to you because of what they did. So what are you going to do about this? Woof, woof. Says this, verse eight, all the men rose up together as one saying, none of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. Here's what they're saying. Ready? We go to war. This cannot stand. We're not going home. We go to war. So they go to war with the tribe of Benjamin who are also Israelites. This is now, if you can imagine, a civil war. We, we have one in our past, right? It's, it's the, the, the worst possible, bloodiest thing where, where everyone who dies is the same. Like in, the, in our civil war, every death was an American death. Every death. In this, every death is an Israelite. Every death. So they go to war and they send a message to, the, to Benjamin saying, hand over the wicked men who did this. All right, hey, let's get end quick. Just hand over the bad guys. And it says they refuse. They, the Benjamites protect their own in their pride. They say, no, no, no. You don't get to do that to any of our people. This is our tribe. These are, this is our blood. These are our people. You, you don't get to pass judgment on us. Hey, don't judge us. All right. So it says this. Verse 13, but the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns in addition to 700. And then this is kind of an odd like statement here, but it, it makes sense given the tactics of war. In addition to 700 able young men of those living in Gibeah. Among all the soldiers, were, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed. What? That is an odd, like, verse in there. Uh, other than to, like, let you know, like, hey, um, there's, some, there's some lefties here. All right? And each of these, it said, could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So these, you ready for this? This is the, uh, the ancient equivalent of snipers. These are the guys who, who could throw a stone and hit their target. They trained. And they were left-handed. I don't know if that gives them an advantage. Uh, you know, uh, any of you left-handed? Yeah, yeah. Like, are, you have, are you raising your left hand? Some of you, you have your right hand up. I Liar. I don't, that's not true. 
right? Every left-hander, I have a, my, one, of, uh, one of my sons is left-handed. And, uh, and if you are left-handed, uh, you know, maybe this is an advantage. You would say it is. And I, you know, who am I to, to argue? Do you, know, do you know, this is not, this is not on my notes, so free of charge. Do you know that there, um, that um, I can't remember the, I think it's 10% of the population is left-handed, but the statistics of presidents is like 30 or 40% were left-handed. So maybe left-handed people are brighter or schemier. <laughs> All right, so we move on. So it tells us that they have a whole select troops of snipers who are also left-handed, um, and, and they don't miss. This is important. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered up 400,000 swordsmen. So here we go. Draw your lines. We're going to war. 400,000 versus the 26,000 uh, of the one tribe. All right, so all of, every, all of Israel versus one tribe. There are three battles. Day one, 400,000 men show up, but they're fighting in the hill country. Uh, they're in the native land of the Benjamites. And so um, they, they certainly don't know the lay of the land. And the Benjamites are, of course, smarter and they understand the, the lay of the land and their warfare and their tactics. And so they, uh, they line up in a particular place that, um, that, uh, that doesn't allow the entire army to pass through at once. So this army of 400,000 has to travel between these hills in a really small passageway. And the Benjamites just pick them off. I mean, they just destroy them. And it says this, the first day, day one, the Benjamites kill 22,000 Israelites. We do the numbers here and they probably lost a few hundred men of their own. But they, I mean, they destroy, they destroy day one, the Israelites. And, and to the point where it's like, how, how are we gonna do this? How, how can we possibly defeat these guys because they know what they're doing? So this, uh, the, uh, the Israelites, they ask God if they should go, um, if they should go again. They start day one and they're like, Lord, should we go? And God's like, I, go, all right. And it's important here that's not in the passage. What's not in the passage, in other passages where God says like, yes, where God says, go and I will give you the victory. He doesn't say that here. He's just like, if you wanna go, go. But I, I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm not in this. I'm not promising to help in this civil war in which all of my children, like every child, every person who dies is a child of mine who dies. So day two, they ask again, you know, like who should go? For day one's like, who should go first? Like, all right, who gets the, who gets the prize? Who gets to go first? I'm like, all right, Judah. Judah goes first because uh, for a number of reasons. And, and this lady was from the tribe of Judah. So it's almost like, all right, you can go first and try to get your revenge. They get destroyed. Day two, God, should we go? Go, all right. Fine, they regroup and they go again. And then the Bible tells us 18,000 are killed the next day, the next, like battle two. All right, it just went just as badly as day two or as day one. So they ask God again. This time, God's like, all right, guys, I'm gonna have to put an end to this. Clearly, you're gonna keep doing this. So he says, go and I will, I will give, you into their, in, give them into your hands. All right, I'm gonna take care of this. I'll make sure you win. It says this in verse 28, the Lord responded, go for tomorrow, I will give them into your hands. So they set an ambush. They decided to get smart. And there's, and there's a whole bunch of passages and verses about like the tactics that is interesting. But for the sake of time, here's what, here's what we see. That they draw the Benjamin, Benjamites out. They go, they fight again. They lose intentionally. And then they retreat and the Benjamites follow them. And they come out of their kind of their, their safe position. And then, the, uh, and then at that point, the Israelites pounce on them and it's over. And it's over 
fairly quick. The plan works and they kill all of the Benjamites, all but 600 Benjamites who escape. But Israel isn't done. So it should be done. All right, hey, battle's over. Guys, let's go home. That's not, again, sin leads to more sin, leads to more sin. Verse 48 says this, the men of Israel went back to Benjamin not just to this particular town and to fight these guys after the battle's over, they leave, but they don't go home. They went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, all of the tribe, every city that they come across, including the animals and everything else they found, all the towns they came across, they set, they set on fire. They destroyed everything. This is, this is terrible. This is terrible. What began as a personal sin then escalates into a town and then a, a city and now an entire nation where they wipe out. They wipe out a tribe. They wipe out this entire tribe all because of, uh, of this, this misdirection, misleading by this Levite and the pride of, the, of this other tribe. And, and no, we won't give in. Let's go fight. How can this happen, right? The civil war takes 65,000 lives because of the Levite and the murder of his concubine. You read this and you're like, this doesn't seem realistic. How could this have possibly happened? I mean, listen, as much as we're like, oh, this is a story. No, 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 this is, this is history. This is part of like the history of the Israelites. How does this happen? How does an entire nation go to war over essentially one person? As tragic and as, and as unjust as it is, like, how does it lead to this? We're, we, we, like, this doesn't make sense. And how is this possible? How can this, how can this happen even in our day? And then you read about World War I. Have you guys read about World War I? Did you know that there was a first world war? Do you know how it started? Do you know how it started? It started, if, again, if you go back to like U.S. history back in high school, it started... If you remember, in large part, like the, the, the first domino that, that, that kind of started it was the assassination of one man, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. First of all, awesome name. Franz Ferdinand. If, you're any, if, you, have, uh, you, know, if you have a child on the way, and if it's a boy, uh, this is a great option. You got a first and middle name there, ready to go. Franz Ferdinand is assassinated. One guy, one guy, the Archduke of Austria is assassinated and the entire world ends up going to war. We see history. We see this happening like in our time, like in our time where we go, oh man, like none of us were around, but like our parents or our grandparents certainly were around like to think about like World War I. That wasn't that long ago. And it happened because of one person. So, so like this is, though terrible and awful, is entirely plausible that a chain of events can start with just one, one, one awful sense, one awful example of injustice can lead to the next. Now, I wish we were done. There's still a whole other chapter. Here we go. Ready? We are utterly sinful and in need of a savior king. All of us, all of humanity. Chapter 21 now. Israel ends up committing the same sin the Benjamites do. In a, in a sense of irony, the thing that they condemn is the thing that they actually commit. We, you and I, can be guilty of the very things we condemn. Ooh. We'll talk about this here in a second. 
As if it wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. Here we go. Verse one, the men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. This oath is important and uh, for the rest of the story. No, he's, they say this, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. No, there's 600 left. Remember, they killed everyone and everything except for these 600 warriors who got away and they allowed them to live. They didn't chase them. None of us will give our daughter in marriage to a Benjamite, even though they're an Israelite, a Benjamite. We're not doing it. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening. And this is like, this is, this is, again, this is like, man, this is terrible, but also, wow, we, we could do the same thing. Raising their voices and weeping bitterly, Lord, Yahweh, God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? You know what they're crying out? God, why did you let us destroy one of your tribes? <laughs> this, they're, they're, they're upset over the very thing they did. God, how could one of our tribes, one of our 12, be entirely wiped out? And the Lord's going, uh, you did it, dummies. What do you mean, why or how could this happen? You guys went to war and you did this. So then they say, all right, well, we, we can't allow the tribe to die out. We have a, a sense of our national pride. It's too great to allow them to be wiped out, even though, <clears throat> sorry for wiping them out. We... We won't, we won't allow this to, to continue. So how can we find wise for the 600 remaining Benjamites? It isn't right for an entire tribe to be cut off, so they have to figure this plan out. None of, all of us said we will not give one of our daughters to them, so we're, where are we gonna find these wives? We got, and, we, we, and we want them to be Israelites. We want to stay within the family. How do we do this? So they discovered no one from a particular region, a particular city came to fight with them. No one from Jabesh Gilead came to fight with them. They're going through the roster and they're like, oh man, this whole group, this whole city didn't come to fight with us. All right. That means they also, this is their logic, they also didn't take the oath not to give their daughters. Bingo. We found a population that has women. All right. So it says this, verse 10. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and to put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. Okay. This, listen, here's, here's the crime of these people. They kept at peace. They didn't, they didn't go to war. And, and these Israelites, again, doing what is right in their own eyes, decide, all right, well, let's go take care of them. Let's go punish them for not coming to our aid and helping us. And then it says this, this is what you to do. They said, kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. All right. They take... They kill everyone, but there are 400 women there and they, they're like, we got 400 women, 400 to be given to the Benjamites and they kill everyone else. Again, this is terrible. And in their twisted logic, they're like, ah, oh, we're 200 short. How are we gonna do this? Like, okay, listen, you've done enough. You've done enough for the day. No, we need 200 more. We have 600 guys, 400 wives. Quick math tells me we're short. So they decide we gotta fix this. All right. And the elders of the assembly said, with the, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how are we gonna provide wives for the men who are left? All right, so they line up. The first 400 get a wife. All right, there's 200 at the back of the line are like, all right, what do we do? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said. They made a vow, you remember though. We're not gonna give our wives. We won't do it. So they can't have any of ours. So we're short. Where are we gonna find them? We won't break our vow. They won't be taken from us. 
And then again, this is now where they start to do the same thing, the same thing that the Benjamites are guilty of. Here it says in verse 19, but look, there's an annual festival, festival of the Lord in Shiloh. Okay, translation, ready? There's a worship service going on in Shiloh. There's a gathering and they're worshiping God at this festival. Wonderful. All right. There's people there. And there's women there. So they instructed the Benjamites, the, the guys that they fought against in the civil war that they defeated. And now they're like, actually, we feel bad for you. We're going to actually find you wives. They told them, these remaining 200, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out and join in the dancing, when they're enjoying their worship for the Lord, rush from the vineyards and each one of you seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. All right, here's what we want you to do. Ready? The very thing we attacked you for, for taking a, another, a, another woman and a, kidnapping her, we want you to go do that. Now with, with our own women. What? How, how? How could you do this? Continues. Says this. Uh, they, they do this. Uh, and then it says this. What if, what, if our, what if their fathers and brothers complain? Because these are now insiders. These are, these are people who did take the vow, who said, we're not gonna give our women. All right, what, what do we say if the father or the brother comes and says, what are you doing? We made this vow. We can't do this. We can't give. You're not, you can't have my daughter because I made the same vow you did. It says this, tell them, do us the favor of helping them. Hey, listen, do us a solid. Because we did not get wives from them during the war, listen, Here's the deal. You won't be guilty of breaking your oath. This is the logic. Because you did not give your daughters to them, they took them. Because you didn't hand them over, you're innocent. Don't worry about it. You're fine. You're more concerned about your oath than your daughter. Hey, so don't, listen, don't you worry. God won't hold you guilty of breaking your vow. Oh, that's what's important here. Huh. So, verse 23, that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing and each, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them and recreated the tribe of, of, Benja, of, ben, of Benjamin and they become the Benjamites. And then it says this, at that time, this is how the book of Judges ends. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. Everyone went home. Everybody was fine. And they all lived happily ever after. That's how the story ends. All right, we did all this stuff. Okay, you're good, you're good. You got a wife, you got a wife. Okay, you didn't break your vow. Everyone's good. We got 600 guys, 600 wives. Everyone, okay, ready? All right, good. You all may go home. You, you are Relieved of, du of your duty, you are dismissed. Wow, that's how this thing ends. And then it ends with one final verse. Here it is, ready? In those days, Israel had no king. <laughs> and everyone did as they saw fit. There was no moral authority. There was no one ruling over them. And they did whatever they wanted to do. All right, now, here we go, ready? What does this have to do with us? I promise you, none of us, will ever be a part of something like this. I can't, it can't, it simply can't happen. But what we learn from the book of Judges is interesting. It really is. Not that we would copy them in their actions or their deeds. We wouldn't. You and I wouldn't even, this is, this is incomprehensible. 
this is, this is the, the worst of the worst. There's no way we would do this. But you and I, we do have the same motives. We do carry out the same intentions. Not the same actions, but the same desire for um, self-preservation or our own selfish wants. Let me read you a quote from probably the leading commentator on the book of Judges who, you know, a number of other uh, commentators all quote this guy, Daniel Block, who wrote a commentary on Judges that, that is wonderful. And, and here's how he ends it. And man, he, does, he, he shines the light right on us. Yeah, on, when I say us, even like me in particular. He says this, no book in the Old Testament offers the church, the modern church, as telling a mirror as this book. He says, no book in the Old Testament is as effective as a mirror for the church as the book of Judges. Okay, that's a bold statement. Of all the books in the Old Testament, this is the one? This is the one that we look at and we're like, oh man, I can see myself? Hold on. And then he goes on to list. From the jealousies of the Ephraimites to the religious pragmatism of the Danites, from the paganism of Gideon to the self-centeredness of Samson, and from the unmanliness of Barak to the violence against women by the men of Gibeah. Here's what he says, ready? He's not wrong, by the way. All of the marks of Canaanite degeneracy are evident in the church and its leaders today. We don't do the same thing, but those same traits are evident in the church and a lot of its leaders today, he says. This book is a wake-up call for a church marabund or on its, the end of its death, he says, in its death process, in its own selfish pursuits. Here it goes, ready? Instead of heeding the call of truly godly leaders and letting Jesus Christ be the Lord of the church, everywhere, congregations and their leaders, okay, this is now where all Christ, the whole thing lands right here, do what is right in their own eyes. Ooh. Listen, as much as we want to say, hey, we're really good people, you are guilty of this, of doing what is right in your own eyes. Even, ready? Okay, here we go. Toes are out and I'm, I see toes and you know what I do to toes. Here we go. Even when you read about it in scripture and you know that this is wrong and sinful, we still say, I'm gonna do it. And we're really good at justifying the reasons why. Even though you know it's wrong, we can still have, we still have this sin bug in us that says, yeah, but I'm gonna do what's right in my own eyes. And, and what happens is you see, we've seen this. I see this, I hate it. And I, I'm also like realized, man, we are susceptible to this as well. Churches and church leadership and church like pastors fall on this very thing because they preach one thing and they do another. They preach one thing and yet they do what is right in their own eyes whether it be how they lead or, or the congregation itself or self-centeredness or just pragmatism or the, the covering up of sin and crimes because of what it could do to the unity of the church. Like this, this stuff happens. We, like this is, this is evident and prevalent in the church today. We read the book of Judges and instead of saying, oh man, that can never happen to us. And, and 
And to this degree, I don't think we could, this won't ever happen to us. But man, the same things that like tempted them, tempt us to cover up our own sin by maybe not telling the whole truth, to making decisions out of pride instead of out of humility. Ooh, okay, I'm guilty of that. To lead out of self-centeredness, like pursuing your own happiness at the expense of others. I mean, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but every hand would go up. Like, have you ever done that? Okay, pastor, stop saying stuff. (laughs) Tim Keller, he ends uh, his commentary on Judges. Tim Keller is one of my favorites, by the way. Uh, I try not to quote him every sermon, but I, I fail a lot because it's just too good. He says this, for now we all search for a king someone to rule us, someone to rescue us. There is one, there's only one man who provides what we are looking for. We must look to the greatest king, the ultimate judge, or we will serve a false one. We are utterly sinful and in need of a savior king. Listen, this is, this is the, the beginning stage of the gospel. This is putting in front of us how, like, just how utterly sinful as a people we are and, and, and how we can relate and see ourselves, not in their actions, but certainly in their temptations and in their motivations, we, get, we experience the same kinds of struggle. We are utterly sinful. You, listen, you are utterly sinful. As good a person as you think you are, you are, the Bible says, filthy rags. Filthy rags in the presence of the Lord. You are utterly sinful. And you, you and me need a savior king. We're gonna pray and we're gonna worship the Lord and then we're gonna do some, uh, have communion together as, as we celebrate and remember what our savior king did for us. Would you do this? Would you stand with me and I'll pray for us. And we'll worship the Lord um, because he doesn't leave us in the state like this. A state, a state of, of utter helplessness. But he comes as a, a savior king and does rescue us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Jesus, we thank you that we could not, we could not be where we are. We could not know you. And we, we could not, we could not be your church apart from the rescue mission that you came to seek and save the lost, to save us, to be, to be our Savior King. We worship you now, Lord, and we remember you and what you did for us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.